0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all, and uh, welcome to our first uh, week of Advent. And uh, we saw the video of the people setting up uh, yesterday, but I I just want to say thank you again to around the 13 people who came yesterday morning to help set up and to usher in our Advent season. Now, I realize that uh, some of you uh, may be new to church or uh, you may have grown up in a church context where Advent was not really emphasized. Uh, So I thought it might be helpful to provide just a little bit of information about Advent and what it is and what it means. Uh, We don't know exactly when Advent began, uh, but certainly by the fifth century after Christ's death, uh, we have historical records about Advent and even details of uh, its practice in the church. Now, because it's been around for about 1500 years, uh, there's certainly a lot of history and tradition in how and why Advent is practiced. But the main idea and the goal of the season is simply to help us to draw closer to Christ. The goal of Advent is to help us to draw closer to Christ. And the way that we do that is that each week, we purposefully and intentionally read and think about and immerse ourselves again into the story of Jesus and his birth. And for many of us, it's a familiar story that we've heard many times. Uh, There's the angels and the shepherds, uh, the wise men, Joseph and Mary, and the virgin birth. But even though it's a familiar story, I hope that it never becomes a boring or a tired story to us. Instead, I hope that it's more like one of our favorite movies or books, a story that we can return to and enjoy and find greater meaning in the more uh, we we look into it. And my personal prayer and hope is that as we begin uh, this new season of Advent, I pray that God would give us a fresh understanding of this familiar story and that we would see and experience and know in greater depth the beauty, the wonder, and the amazing hope that is found in the story of Jesus. And in a year that has been filled with yet more challenges and for us as a church, as we have grieved and have now entered into a season of change, I I don't know what could be better than for us to just fix our eyes on Jesus. And what a gift this season is to us where we can refocus and reorient our lives around him. And this is a a idea behind our Advent uh, theme for this year, which is to behold him. So we want to behold Jesus We want to see afresh and know and behold him in all his glory, his power, and his majesty. And just as a little preview of what's to come, uh, here are the themes that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. So we are going to behold him, Jesus our Redeemer, Jesus our Savior, Jesus our King, Jesus our Joy. And then at our Christmas Eve service, which is at 5 p.m., Jesus, our Messiah. Now, personally, uh, I have been really looking forward to Advent for a little while because I find that I am needing this season. I, I need to hear once again the story of Jesus and be reminded of who he is for me, and who he is for the world. And so as we look again at the story of Jesus and the incarnation, um, I'd love to pray for us and ask Jesus to reveal himself to us in greater depth uh, this season. So would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are the hope and the light of the world. We long for more of you and want to draw near to you, Jesus. We pray that you would help us this Advent season to behold you. And would you open our eyes, our hearts, and our minds so that we may see you with greater depth and clarity. And as we do, May we be transformed more and more into your likeness with ever-increasing glory. So we ask for more of you, Jesus. Would you reveal yourself to us, we pray. Amen. So this morning, uh, we read from two different passages in Scripture. And the first was from Matthew chapter 1, and it detailed the genealogy of Jesus. Andrew, thanks for <laughs> reading that marathon of names. Um, and to be honest, when I, you know, when I read the Bible and if a genealogy appears, I just kind of skip past it. <laughs> um, and if you thought the passage in Matthew was long... Um, In the Old Testament, there's actually chapters upon chapters upon chapters of genealogy, so that's not, you know, the worst that it can get. But I'm not saying that's a good thing to have that view, but I'm just being honest about my experiences with genealogies. Um, But the one that we read this morning in Matthew is actually really interesting. So genealogies back then would normally be traced through the men of the family, Uh, But in Matthew, we find four women, well, five including Mary, but before we get to Mary, there's four women who are specifically named in the lineage that leads to Jesus. And so the four women mentioned are Tamar, Rahab, uh, yeah, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, um, and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is not named, but Uriah's wife at the end there is Bathsheba. So again, this is outside the norm of how genealogies would normally be constructed, and so we should be paying attention to why these four women are specifically mentioned. And when you look at their life stories, what you find is a common theme that connects all of them, and it's the theme of redemption, These four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, each of their lives bear witness to a God of grace and a God who redeems. And that's why we read from our second passage of scripture this morning, which was from Psalm 103. So we'll just read a part of Psalm 103. It says, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. This psalm was written by King David, and in it he declares that the Lord had redeemed his life from the pit. And the pit is a place of darkness, it's a place of despair, and in fact, when you look at the life of King David, it's not just one pit that he encounters, but he experiences many pits in his life, much like we do. But David had experienced the Lord as the one who redeems his life from the pit, And likewise, when we look at the lives of these four women, we can see this theme of redemption in each of their lives. So let's look a bit more in-depth into each of their stories, and uh, we'll start with Tamar. Now, there are three different Tamars in the Bible, but the one being referred to today, uh, her story is found in Genesis chapter 38. And the story begins with a man named Judah, who is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and from which comes the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is the tribe of Judah. So Judah gets married, and he has three sons. The first is named Er, the second is named Onan, and the third is Shelah. So Er, Onan, and Shelah. Now, Judah finds a wife for his firstborn son, Er, and this is Tamar. So Tamar marries Er, but before they have any children, Er dies. Now, in ancient times, if a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to provide offspring for the deceased brother. And this would actually become part of the law commanded by God to Moses and the people of Israel. So in Israel, if a man was married but died before having any children, it was an unmarried brother's uh, responsibility and duty to marry his brother's widow so that his deceased brother's name and lineage would carry on. So going back to Tamar, her first husband, heir, dies. So then Judah gives her his second son, Onan. But then before they can have any children, Onan also dies. And that leaves Judah with his third and his last son, Shelah. But instead of giving Shelah to Tamar right away, Judah tells um, Tamar to return to her own father's house and to wait as a widow until Shelah had grown up. And then he would give him to her. Now, it may have been, in fact, that Shelah was a bit too young because Tamar agrees to this plan. So she goes back home to her father's house and waits as a widow. But the scriptures tell us that the real reason that Judah did not give Shelah to Tamar is because he feared that his last son, would die just like the others. He's thinking, maybe it's something to do with Tamar, and if I give her my last son, then I'm not gonna have any heirs. So then it says that some time passes, Uh, Shelah grows up, but Judah doesn't give him to her. And so after a while, Tamar recognizes what is going on, and she plots a plan. So Tamar hears that Judah is going to visit a certain town to do some work with his sheep. So Tamar covers her face with a veil, and she poses as a prostitute near that town that Judah was going to visit. And as Judah passes by, he sees Tamar, but he doesn't recognize her because of the veil. And he approaches her, Uh, He approaches what he thinks is a local prostitute of the town. He bargains a price, and then he sleeps with her. Now let's just pause for a minute because I know the story just took a left turn. (laughs) Um, So a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that one of the ways that we can misunderstand the Bible is to think of it as a story of good people and bad people and heroes and villains. And that's a misunderstanding of what the Bible is actually about. Because Judah, he's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He's supposed to be a good guy. But again, this is a misunderstanding of what the Bible actually communicates. So the story of Scripture is not about good people versus bad people, and therefore, we should be more like the good people. The scriptures actually say that there is only one who is good, and that's God alone. And from cover to cover, the story of the Bible is a story of a good God who faithfully shows his grace and mercy to us human beings who, although we are capable of good— Nonetheless are all flawed and weak and in need of God's redemption. And so Judah is a man who is flawed and weak and in need of redemption and he makes this tragic decision and sleeps with Tamar without knowing who she is. Now As a promise of his payment, because he didn't have it with him at the time, Judah leaves with Tamar his personal signet, which was likely a ring that had his personal stamp. So he gives her his ring, his cord, and his staff to her. And then soon after, Judah sends a friend to make payment and to recover his own personal items, but the friend discovers that the prostitute has disappeared. Now, after about three months, uh, Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, and he becomes outraged, thinking that she has been living an immoral life, which, by the way, is utter hypocrisy on his part. But then Tamar sends a messenger to Judah, and she says, "'Here is the signet and the cord and the staff of the one who got me pregnant.'" And when Judah realizes what he's done, he is filled with shame and he acknowledges that he was the one in the wrong for withholding his last son to her. Then after a few more months, the time comes for Tamar to give birth, and when she does, she gives birth to twins and names them Perez and Zerah. Now in terms of Tamar's life story, that's about as much as we know. The rest of her life is not really um, chronicled in the Bible. But what we do know is that Tamar and Judah and their son, Perez, are included in Matthew's genealogy, meaning that all three of them are direct ancestors and part of the lineage that leads to Jesus. Now let's think about this story and consider some questions. Judah is obviously a flawed and broken person in many ways. So why is he included in the genealogy that leads to Jesus? Why should Jesus come from his line rather than one of the other 12 sons of Jacob? And even if Judah was included, he had another older son, Shella. But instead of him, why was it a son from this tragic and dark and twisted act with Tamar, his daughter-in-law? Why is it their son that becomes an ancestor of Jesus? Before we answer those questions, let's continue moving forward and look at the three stories of the other uh, three women Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And I'm going to try to keep these stories a bit brief so that we can get through all of them. So next is the story of Rahab. Now Rahab, uh, when we first meet her, is a prostitute in the city of Jericho. And at that time, the people of Israel were at war with the people of Jericho and the surrounding areas. And what we discover is that Rahab, even though she's not an Israelite, she has heard about the God of Israel and his mighty power. And she has heard about how Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt through many miracles, and how Israel was now overcoming powerful kings and cities by the power of God. And because of this, Rahab comes to believe that the God of Israel is the true God over the heavens and the earth. Now, Israel is about to battle the city of Jericho, but before they do, they send some spies into the city to scope out the land, um, and the spies end up sheltering at Rahab's house. And then the king of Jericho, he hears that there are spies in the city, and so he sends soldiers to Rahab's house and tells her to bring out the foreign men who were staying with her. But instead of giving them up, Rahab protects them and tells the king's soldiers that the foreign men who were staying at her house had already left. And she sends them on a wild goose chase outside the city. And then Rahab says to the spies, she says, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. And so the spies agree that because she saved their lives, they promise that they will save the lives of Rahab and her whole family. Eventually, Israel battles and defeats the city of Jericho, but Rahab and her whole family are spared, and Rahab actually then becomes part of the nation of Israel. Not only that, but Rahab ends up marrying an Israelite man, and she gives birth to a son named Boaz. Boaz is the great-grandfather of David, who would later become king of Israel. And of course, from the line of David comes Jesus. So that's Rahab's story, Uh, a prostitute and an outsider who comes to faith in the God of Israel, shows kindness to them, they show kindness to her, and she becomes a part of that nation. So then let's move on to Ruth. Ruth's story begins with a woman named Naomi. Now Naomi and her husband uh, were Israelites and they lived in the land of Israel, but then because of a famine, they decide as a couple to move to a foreign country. And they move to a country called Moab and they settle there. Naomi and her husband have two sons, uh, but then Naomi's husband dies. So then it's just Naomi and her two sons. And when they grow up, uh, they marry local Moabite women, And those two women are named Orpah and then Ruth. After about 10 years, tragically, both of Naomi's sons die. And so now it's just Naomi... She has no husband, no sons, and no way to provide for her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Meanwhile, by that time, Naomi hears that the famine in Israel had ended, so she decides that she's going to go back to her own people. And she tells her daughters-in-law to return to their own families in Moab. And her hope is that they will be able to find new husbands amongst their own people in Moab. Now, both daughters initially refuse to leave Naomi because they love her and they don't want to leave her. They say that they want to go back to Israel with her, but Naomi argues with them and says they shouldn't follow her because she has no more sons that she can give to them, and she has no way of providing for them. So one daughter-in-law, Orpah, she weeps and she kisses Naomi farewell and she goes back to her family. But Ruth is stubborn and she doesn't do that. And Ruth tells Naomi the following. I'm going to put this on the screen. This is Ruth to Naomi. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth gives this beautiful declaration of loyalty and devotion to Naomi. And Naomi realizes she's not gonna convince Ruth otherwise. And so together they return to the land of Israel. They return to Naomi's hometown and uh, Ruth begins to go into the fields uh, to pick the leftover grain that remains. And this was actually a command from God to the people of Israel. It was was part of their laws. Uh, God commands the Israelites not to pick everything from their harvest fields. And instead, they were to leave some behind uh, for the poor and the needy and the foreigners who lived in their lands. So Ruth, as someone who was poor and needy and a foreigner, She goes to a field to pick some grain so that she can provide food for herself and Naomi. But it turns out that the field that she's working in happens to belong to a man named Boaz. And this is the same Boaz we just mentioned in Rahab's story. So Boaz notices that a strange foreign woman is is in his fields and so he asks who this is. And he learns that this is Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, a foreigner from Moab who had refused to leave Naomi but was committed to supporting her and living in the land of Israel. And it also turns out that Boaz was actually a relative of Naomi. We don't know how exactly, but Boaz is part of the same clan that Naomi's husband uh, was a part of. Now, to cut a long story short uh Boaz and ruth they they meet one another and take a liking to each other and then some interesting ancient courting practices occur uh, which you can read for yourself it's there's no dinner in a movie um, and ultimately, Boaz decides that um As a relative of Naomi, he has an opportunity to act as a kinsman redeemer uh, for Naomi's family. And this is similar to a man marrying a deceased brother's widow uh, to maintain the family lineage of the deceased man. So Boaz acts as a kinsman redeemer and wants to marry Ruth. And remember that Boaz is the son of Rahab. So his own mother was not originally an Israelite, but a foreigner from the city of Jericho. And so maybe this is why Boaz's heart went out to Ruth, because she was also a foreigner from Moab, and Boaz can relate to what that's like. So Boaz, he marries Ruth, and he redeems Naomi's family line. And the other woman. they say to Naomi, uh, they say, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Ruth and Boaz, they get married, they have a child, and they name him Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of King David. And with King David, now we can talk about the fourth and the last woman in our genealogy, which is Bathsheba. So Bathsheba, when we first meet her, she's a married woman. Uh, Her husband is named Uriah, and Uriah is a soldier for Israel. And then one day, when Uriah is away at war, King David notices Bathsheba. And even though he knows that she's a married woman, he nonetheless sends his servants uh, to bring her to the palace, and he sleeps with her. And then Bathsheba discovers that she is pregnant. And so King David, he immediately brings Uriah back from the war, hoping that while he's at home, he will sleep with his wife and think that the child is his. But when Uriah comes back to Israel, he actually doesn't do that. And evidently, he's a man of honor and principles. And he tells King David that it would be wrong for him to enjoy the comforts of his home when his fellow soldiers were at war. And so Uriah decides to lodge with the rest of the servants um, at the palace. So he doesn't go home. The next day, uh, David tries again to persuade Uriah to go home to his wife. But again, he refuses. And so seeing that his plan is not going to work, King David sends Uriah back to the battlefield And he orders that Uriah be sent to the front lines where the fighting is fiercest. And then David's new plan succeeds when Uriah dies in battle. Now, in matters of love and marriage and adultery, um, things are complicated. And it says that Bathsheba mourns over the death of her husband. And so although she committed adultery with the king, she mourns over Uriah, who, as far as we know, was an honorable man. After a time of mourning, Bathsheba is brought to the palace and then her and King David, they get married and she gives birth to their child. But again, uh, this theme of tragedy in all their lives Uh, The child dies after seven days. So then Bathsheba mourns again, uh, together this time with David over the loss of their child. And then eventually, though, Bathsheba and David, they have another child together, and they name him Solomon. And again, all three of them become ancestors to Jesus. So there it is the four stories of the four women specifically named in the genealogy. Now, as we have looked at the lives of these four women, I wonder if there are ways in which we can personally relate to their stories. Maybe not in the specific details, but the general themes. These women, they they suffer the death and the loss of loved ones, They suffer betrayal and abandonment. There is economic and financial ruin. There are tragic decisions made with consequences that alter the course of their lives. And there are relationships that are broken and lives destroyed by sin. And yet, what do we see and what do we learn from these four stories? And what we see are stories of redemption. Four lives that are redeemed by Jesus. Let's think back to Tamar. Tamar who has two husbands die. Tamar whose father-in-law abandons her Tamar, who made a terrible decision to pose as a prostitute and to sleep with her father-in-law. And yet, the child that she bears from that dark act, her firstborn son, Perez, incredibly, he is the one who becomes part of the family line that leads to Jesus. Let's think about Rahab again. Rahab, who was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Rahab, who no doubt suffered the brokenness from this way of life and likely suffered the social shame that would have come from the people of the city. But as a prostitute, she has this chance encounter with the Israelite spies and because of her faith in the God of Israel, she is able to rescue and save not only herself, but her whole family, her father and mother and brothers and sisters and their families as well. But notice, no husband of her own. But then she would be welcomed into the nation of Israel, and she ends up marrying an Israelite man, and together they produce a son, Boaz, who becomes an ancestor to Jesus. And it's the same themes with Ruth and Bathsheba. Their stories are filled with death and loss and darkness, but then we see God's redemption at work. And their lives, their children, their family history and legacy are all redeemed by Jesus. And so God is able to redeem any life, no matter how tragic or broken the situation or the circumstances. And the common thread that is woven through each of these stories is Jesus. Each one of these four women with all the brokenness, and tragedy in their stories, and yet their lives and family legacy lead to and culminate in the birth of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah that Israel was longing for. Jesus redeems their life stories. And just as Jesus redeems their lives, Jesus redeems our lives. Our lives and our stories connect to him because Jesus is not just the Messiah for the people of Israel, but he is the Messiah for all peoples, for the whole world. And Jesus calls and invites all people to follow him. And so if there's one thing that we take away from these four stories, I think it's this. There is no life situation and no event so dark, no act so sinful and no life so broken that Jesus cannot redeem. And in fact, what we learn is that Jesus can take the most devastating parts of our lives and redeem them for good. There is nothing and no one beyond the redeeming power of Jesus. There is nothing and no one beyond the redeeming power of Jesus. And not only are we as human beings being redeemed, but one day all creation will be redeemed by Jesus. And this fallen and broken world that we live in will one day all be healed and there will be no more pain, no sickness, no more sin or death. And there will be a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth where the light and the glory and the presence of God will never fade. And on that day, we will be face to face with Jesus, our Redeemer the one who has redeemed the world, will be with him forever and ever, all our days. I'd like to close this morning by bringing back Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. The pit is a place of darkness and despair, and some of us are in a pit. And try as we might, we, we can't get out. Or maybe we get out for a little while, but then we fall back into it again. Some of us are in a pit, and we've actually been there for so long that we don't even recognize that we're in one. And we see the world as a dark place and think that's just the way it is. But it's not. Jesus came to redeem our lives from the pit, and in him there is hope, there is light, and there is redemption. And even those of us who have been following Jesus for many years, maybe decades, we still need Jesus's hope and light as much as we've ever needed him. And so, church, this Advent season, let us behold him and seek to daily fix our eyes on Jesus, our Redeemer, Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Joy, and our Messiah. Let us behold him. Let's pray together.